I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. Have you ever seen a New Yorker's map of the United States? It consists of New York, New Jersey, desert, and California. Strangely, it's a tunnel-visioned approach not far removed from the way people view the late Bob Crane. Bob was the star of the 1965 to 1971 Hogan's Heroes, and as far as they're concerned, his life has been reduced to that sitcom, his unsolved 1978 murder, and the scandal that followed it. That assessment of his father is something that his journalist son, Robert Crane, has had to deal with over the past 40 years, which he and co-writer Christopher Fryer attempted to do in their 2015 book, Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. That tome also focuses on their relationship and Robert's own struggles with growing up in Hollywood. In this episode of the podcast, which you should be listening to on Spotify, Robert reflects on it all, revealing sides of his father you may not have been aware of, and candidly discussing the events that ended his life and the aftermath. The view of your father, I think, from people, uh, things begin with Hogan's Heroes and end with, unfortunately, his death and the aftermath of that. I'd like to paint more of a portrait of him to get a sense of who he was beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and you're, you're really talking about a 13-year period. Uh, it's approximately 65 through 78, um, as in 1965 to 1978. Yeah. doesn't seem like a lot of time, you know, now. Uh, when you're in it, 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 you know, like he's living it and I'm part of the family and we're living it vicariously through him. It seems like a long time, but, um, yeah, looking back now, not, um, so I, I, I guess the, the major points before Hogan's heroes, uh, well, a couple, my dad come, came from a small town in Connecticut. Well, he was born in Waterbury and, uh, then he, he and his parents moved to Stamford, Connecticut, and he met my mom and they, uh, actually met while going to high school it, you know this is back in the 40s that's what you did you you met your person in high school and then you uh you know some lucky people went on to college uh, a lot uh in his town did not you know you go get a job and then you get married and you have kids and that's basically what they did um so a, a lot of people don't know that he started off in radio really um, uh, on, uh, all the way from, you know, Bridgeport, Connecticut, WICC, uh, to a couple of stations in, uh, n- New York state, one in Hornell. Um, and he was also a drummer, a jazz drummer, pretty good, pretty good jazz drummer, uh, heroes like Buddy Rich, you know, Louis Belson, Gene Krupa, uh, it loved music. My mom loved music, played music. They were in the band together in high school. And, um, so those are, those are a couple of things that probably, you know, a lot of people would not, uh, know about, um, the big break for my family and my dad's career was when, um, uh, KNX, which is the Los Angeles CBS radio, uh, outlet, uh, had an opening on their morning show, um, which was a Monday through Saturday thing, four hours every morning, you know, drive t- 
time, prime time radio. Right. Uh, and they, they heard my dad's uh, tape from uh, while he was in Connecticut. And uh, they loved what they heard. And he, he went out to Los Angeles, had an interview uh, with the uh, general manager at KNX. And uh, they got back to him and said, you're our guy. So we were the pioneers in our family um, moving from uh, small town Connecticut to big Los Angeles. Uh, At that point, it was my mom, my dad, and me uh, before my two younger sisters were born. And, uh, you know, we didn't know anything about Mexican food or, uh, you know, a lot of things going on in L.A. at that time. Uh, And they rented a home in Sherman Oaks, which uh, was a nice area, still is, a suburb of L.A. And uh, he was on the air for nine years, uh, battling it out with a guy named Dick Whittinghill, who was on another station, kind of back and forth, who was number one on morning radio. And uh, during that, um, my dad started acting, uh, small theaters, work, you know, out here in the Valley, San Fernando Valley, um, just love being in front of an audience, uh, getting, you know, laughs and things like that. And then on his radio show, he would have guests on in the last hour, uh, just everybody you can think of at that time in the fifties and sixties. And one of the guests was, uh, Carl Reiner, who was producing, uh, the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, which was like number one sitcom for sure it might have been the oh, number yeah. one show too everybody loved the dick van dyke show and uh carl reiner was watching my dad do the radio show there was a lot of comedy improvised comedy that my dad did on the show and like that and he said you know there's a role in the show that we're filming next week that would be perfect for you and my dad jumped of course and he uh filmed the show he plays a philandering husband. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so it uh, gets a little too close to Mary, uh, Laura Petrie, Mary Tyler Moore, in that episode. Rob Petrie, Dick Van Dyke, does not like that. And they're doing a PTA show, talent show. And, uh, and my dad is married, and he gets called out by his wife and pulls out of the show and, you know, whatever. It, it was a great script. Uh, Martin Ragaway, I'll never forget. I read the script. I was, you know, uh, what was I at the time? Uh, 11, 12 years old. Very funny. Uh, my mom and I went to the filming of the show live in front of an audience. And uh, it was great. And it aired. And, uh, of course, everybody watched the Dick Van Dyke show. And Donna Reed's husband, Tony Owen, who was producing the Donna Reed show, saw it and said, hey, this guy would be, you know, we need a little some new blood in the Donna Reed show. And this guy would be great as one of the wacky neighbors, uh, along with Anne McCray. And so they came on and did, uh, what, what was called in that day, uh, seven out of 13. So for every 13 episodes that were filmed, my dad was in seven of them, of them, uh, per his contract. Um, and he did that for a couple of years and then, uh, his agent gave him the script and he, and he said, this is a uh, world war two. And my dad got, nah, you know, I want to do comedy. <laughs> yeah, and he right, said, 
Yeah, the agent said, this is comedy. Right, which is uh, how P- you react P- to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> a POW camp? Yep. And he, my dad went in, he read with uh, Werner Klemper, who went on to play Klink, uh, Colonel Klink, and they did uh, read some scenes together, great chemistry. Uh, Edward H. Feldman, who was producing the show, who's really the brains behind uh, Hogan's Heroes, loved what he saw, and he signed both of them. And then uh, from then on, there on, he filled in the cast. Um, you know, Robert Clary, Richard Dawson, Larry Hovis, Ivan Dixon, among others. John Banner, of course, is Schultz. And it just all seemed to click. Um, and towards the end of that, they started filming in June of 1965. And it was going to debut in September of 1965. And during the summer, they got such a great vibe uh, they meaning the the crew, the cast, the producers, writers, directors about this show that my dad gave up his radio wow. show uh, before the debut of Hogan's Heroes. It's either confidence so he, or foolishness, huh? You don't know which at that exactly. point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he rolled the dice. Uh and I guess he figured in the back of his mind, well, gee, you know, if this show flops, I can always go back, you know, somewhere uh, and get more radio work, you know, um, and go from there. Right. Uh, but, yeah, he he took the plunge and uh, they they ran for six years. And the miraculous thing, I, I, I think, is that it's still running. I mean, it's on me TV and yeah. uh, other stations around the world. And we're, it's now in its, uh, well, that would be, what, 55 years, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, 55 years, which is amazing. 55 years. Amazing. Absolutely. I'm still trying to wrap my head around, uh, and I guess I'm taking you out of the timeline, so to speak, if that's okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that your dad had this career, which I don't think people realized as a disc jockey uh, working in radio. And, right. And, and we can go back to Hogan's heroes in a sec. I just, I just am curious about that, what he was like as a disc jockey, because it's hard to imagine it in some ways. Yeah. I, I had the good fortune of, uh, watching him do the show a number of times that, you know, if, uh, if there was school, vacation or during the summer a holiday or something you know i would uh run down there with him i mean literally he, he this was the day of no assistants no drivers no pas no you know posse nothing he would get in his car at 5 30 in the morning and you know if i had the day off i'd go with him i, I was uh 12 years old let's say and we jump in the car and we leave the unfashionable Tarzana, which TV Guide called it when they did an article on him, <laughs> and drove about 90 miles an hour, uh, that's my dad driving, to Hollywood, uh, Gower and Sunset, for anybody who knows Hollywood, Gower and Sunset, uh, diagonally across from the old Columbia Pictures studio. And we would sail down there, park the car, run into the CBS radio building, elevator up to the studio, and boom. He jumps in the studio, 
He's got three turntables. This is all pre-digital, and this is vinyl, vinyl. Uh, three turntables, a partial drum set, wow. uh, a horse collar with a microphone on it so he can stand, he can swivel in his chair, you move around. And then uh, across from him, uh, up a little bit, like a just slightly higher floor behind glass, was his engineer, they call it an engineer at the time, uh, a guy named Jack Chapman, who would play the music and commercials. And those were also also on vinyl, and also uh, they were starting uh, cartridge, not cassette, but cartridge. Uh, some of the commercials would be on cartridge. And uh, it was a five-ring circus, live, no script, whatever was going on in the day with news or, you know, the celebrities that would be coming in later at nine o'clock or, or whatever, my dad just formulated these ideas in his brain. Uh, he had uh, comedy records, sound effect records, uh, and he would uh, rig those up on the turntables and cue them up to, you know, a certain sound that he would like, for instance, uh, Hertz, uh, rent a car, Hertz, rent a car, puts you in the driver's seat. And then he cuts out of the commercial and goes to the sound effect of a horrendous car crash. Oh my God. <laughs> and then back to the commercial. And, you know, you'd just be sitting there. He was like an octopus with the arms going, you know, all over the place and queuing up things and, you know, he's got his earphones on. And, and uh, in, in that case, you would think Hertz Rent-A-Car would be upset yeah. with this car crash. They loved it. Wow. The executives at Hertz Rent-A-Car loved this. They loved that he was teasing their product and, you know, actually giving it more airtime by talking about it or, you know, making fun of it or whatever. They, they loved it. Um, so th that was it. It started at 6 in the morning. And it went until uh, 10 o'clock. Uh, and it was just nonstop, uh, uh, again, five-ring circus. Not even three-ring, a five-ring. <laughs> it's like, right, expanded to five. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would be exhausted, you know, as a 12-year-old kid watching this. Yeah. Uh, and my dad did not drink coffee. He didn't take drugs. He didn't, you know, take stimulants or anything. This was just some uh, drive in him to make people laugh and to do wild, nutty things on the radio. Um, that was wow. his goal. But, you know, it's funny. You, you mentioned earlier that he went on and did a lot of episodes of the Donna Reed show. Now, that was a yeah. very low-key comedy, shall we say, or sitcom. I can't imagine yeah. what it would be like for a guy who's, like you said, a five-ring circus, a human circus – to have yes. to put a cap on it basically and play this character that is like so like comparatively speaking so mellow and so low key. <laughs> <laughs> you you are correct. <laughs> you are correct. Sir. <laughs> yeah. Um the, yeah, that was it. And and he the Donna Reed show was filmed at Columbia. So he would get off the air and literally run over to Columbia Studios across the street and then get made up and you know, work they they would plan around him just for the 
couple of things in the morning without him, and then he'd come in and film. Um, yeah, so it was a very tame experience compared to what he was doing and, and the kind of humor that he liked, but he realized a couple of things. I mean, first it was working with the great Donna Reed, right. you know, who's a fantastic actress. Uh, and there were other uh, great players on the show, Carl Betts and Paul Peterson and Shelley Fabres. And, you know, the show had been on for a number of years. It was a hit show. So people watched it. Um, and it was exposure, you know, on a, on a big network show. Was it his kind of humor? Not necessarily. But uh, he, he saw it as a good stepping stone to try to, he wanted to emulate his heroes. His two main acting heroes were Jack Lemmon uh, for both comedy and drama right. and Gig Young. Uh, for same thing, comedy and drama. Gig Young, um, okay. he loved these two guys, and he did get to work with. Um, well, he got to interview Jack Lemon on his radio show, which was a great thrill, and he got to work with Gig Young in a series. And you'll know this, Ed. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It was on part of a season. Um, Maybe I'll with, know it. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it was on NBC in the '70s, uh, oh, and it did not did not do well. John, uh, the co-star was John. Um, forgot his name. He was in Deer Hunter um, and a bunch of other films. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. I know what yeah. you're talking about. I cannot think of the name of it though. Yeah. Sorry for if, those. If listening. I think <laughs> if I think of it, I'll I'll just blurt it out there out of go. nowhere. There but you go. but he did like find Tourette's or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he finally got to work with Gig Young, and that was a great thrill. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, that show was not better. But uh, yeah, so he looked. At, he was on Donna Reed for two seasons, and uh, uh, you know, filming at a big studio, Columbia Pictures, and you know, working with Donna Reed, and you know, th that was a thrill. Um, but again, uh, the humor got little closer to to his radio show when he did Hogan's, you know, uh, where they're doing all sorts of dastardly deeds behind en enemy lines. You know, that that was a bit more in sync with uh, what he liked. Well, and that's a situation, I think, in, in TV where you sometimes have it where it seems like an actor and a character perfectly mesh. Did, did it feel yeah. like that? Did Hogan feel like that to him? From day one. Day one, um, he, my dad was born to play Colonel Robert E. Hogan. He was born to play him, uh, though he was not in the military himself because he just he kind of escaped World War II. He wasn't old enough at the time, but uh, it, that was the role. I mean, the the wise guy. The know-it-all in terms of, you know, Hogan's always got a plan um, right up his alley, right up his alley. And then getting to work with, you know, the some of the people that we mentioned earlier, Werner Klemper, John Banner, and the Hogan's guys, uh, Hogan's heroes, uh, you know, all of these people brought all, you know, sorts of talents from other areas. And uh, it, it was just uh, very exciting. but. 
he he was born to play that role. I I I, I really think uh, Werner Klemper, who was also uh, you know a very very good actor in a uh, you know mainly in dramas. Um, I think Werner Klemper was born to play Clink. I mean, right. I, you just can't think of anybody else playing Colonel Clink. Absolutely. But now, what kind of impact does the success of a show like Hogan's Hero have on Heroes have on him? Do you know what I mean? Because it's like it's one thing to say, "Well, I'm a co-star on the Donna Reed show, and this is very nice, and I'm right. getting some exposure." Suddenly, you're in the center of whatever media storm existed—media, yeah. meteor uh, <laughs> storm yes. that existed at the time. What kind of impact did that have on him? Um, you, you would think. Well, it, it it goes back to one's core, and my dad was brought up, uh, you know, small town Connecticut guy. Uh, his dad worked at a furniture store. His mom was, you know, the stay at home wife, like used to happen. Um, and he did have an older brother who, who was old enough to be in the military. He was in the Navy. Um, this is just a working class family, a total non show business, uh, family. And, and in fact, I, I think, uh, his parents were pretty skeptical, you know, about my dad pursuing, you know, radio and drumming and acting and that kind of thing until, until probably Donna Reed. And then when Hogan's hit big time, uh, they realized he was onto something. Um, so that as the background story, my dad didn't flip out, you know, when Hogan's finished in the top 10, the first season and, and my dad was nominated for a Emmy award. Some people with, uh, without a good foundation, might have you know flipped out and yeah. become ego maniacal or whatever. My dad was very happy that people were watching the show, but <laughs> here's an example Ed, of my dad. So they're filming. The show is now on the air. It's the first season. They take their lunch break. You know, during filming, they have an hour or whatever it was, 45 minutes. He has to go to the bank. See, he doesn't have an assistant who, or a PA right. who's going to run this over for him. Like nowadays where everybody has 12 you know, people in their posse. Yeah. Um, he runs over to Bank of America because he's got a check to deposit. Well, he wants to save time. So he keeps the Hogan's outfit on. <laughs> so the Bank of America so, dressed as Hogan. Exactly. So you're at the Hollywood branch of Bank of America, and you're in line behind the guy who's playing Colonel Hogan with his uniform on, you know. And he he wasn't doing this to show off or anything. He didn't even think about it. Right. And he and he knew he he didn't want to have to change out of his clothing, you know, to get back into Hogan when he came back from the bank. So what's the easiest route? Leave it on. Right. That right. was my dad. My dad in a nutshell. Yeah, you know, no that's part of it. It was just him as no who pretense. Was. Yeah, yeah. And if somebody recognized him in line and asked for an autograph, he'd sign an autograph. No right. big deal, you know. And then make your deposit, get back in your car, drive back to the studio. That was him. Yeah, you know. But now a lot of actors, when the time a show now Hogan's ran for six seasons, right? Yes. Yeah. So by the time a show has been on that long. An actor's usually chomping at the bit to say, okay, I got to do something else. Now I'm kind of done with this show. What was his yeah. feeling when the show came to an end? Well, it, first of all, the, the ending was abrupt. Uh, 
it was a a new I don't know if it was a new total regime or just a new plan for CBS. Was this the Fred Silverman? Uh, they were uh, Fred Silverman thing with the with the uh, rural purge, as they called it. Exactly, exactly. So Hogan's unfortunately was part of the rural purge. Uh, you know, the Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, you know, shows like that that have been huge hits for CBS. They got rid of those, and Hogan's was part of it. Uh, Hogan's, t- in my mind, could have run, you know, another year or two, maybe. And I, I think everybody on the show expected it to to run another year or two. They were planning on it. And uh, the purge came overnight. I mean, this was back in the day before you knew your show was ending and you got to do your final episode, uh, a la MASH, for instance, which came later. MASH knew, you know, at the end of whatever it was, 11, 12 years, they were finishing and they got to do their big blowout uh, end episode, which, you know, attracted huge numbers. Hogan's did not get to do that. They didn't get to have the camp liberated, you know, or the end of the war or something like that. They were just canceled. So they never got to do that last episode. So uh, that, uh, Keep the, keeping that in mind, I think my dad probably at that time was just looking for another series to go into, um, and that didn't happen for about four years after Hogan's ended. And in the meantime, what he did, what he did a couple of movies for Disney, um, Super Dad, which was really bad, uh, Kurt Russell, Barbara Rush, and the Disney stock company, Joe Flynn. Um, you know, people like that. Uh, oh, Dick Van Patten and, uh, you know, their, their repertory company. And then he did a little cameo in a film called Gus about a kicking field goal, kicking mule. Uh, yes. And he got to be an announcer of the football game. But the cool, cool part for me, cause I showed up, of course, hanging around was his co- co-announcer in the movie was Johnny Unitas. Oh. Okay. So I got I got to meet Johnny Unitas, which cool. was thrilling. Yeah. yeah. But he did a few of those. Uh, nothing just didn't translate to uh, the big screen. I think my dad was a uh, TV guy. I think he was a small screen actor. Um, so it, it, he did other, uh, you know, guest star roles on, Oh, the Doris Day show, you know, okay. uh, things like that. Love American style, love boat. Um, those kind of shows of the day, Quincy, you know, night gallery. And, um, he was also doing a play on the road. This is back in the day. Uh, probably most of your, your listeners do not know this. There was a thing called dinner theater, dinner theater. You would go, you would have dinner. And you would watch a live show. Um, and it was all over the country. There was a circuit, you know, that actors and actresses could follow. And you could literally be busy 12 months a year uh, if you wanted to do that. Right. So my dad would fill in, you know, weeks or months or something between TV or, or a couple of movie gigs with dinner theater. So he played all over the country and he... Uh, after a while, he did the the um, uh, same play because they, he could 
recite it forward and backward. And uh, so he was doing that too. But he, bottom line, he wanted to be back on TV. So uh, four years later, uh, people at MTM, Mary Tyler Moore Company, who are you know on top of the world, Mary Show, uh, Phyllis, Rhoda, Bob Newhart, oh, yeah. you know, they're huge, huge company. They offer my dad a show about a guy in his 40s who goes back to college, med school, to become a, a doctor. Uh, it kind of sounds like Carol's second, second act, right? Yeah. Second, second act, act. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, this is 1975. And um, it started out as a one-camera show, you know, one-camera filmed uh, show. They did the pilot, not a very good pilot. But NBC liked my dad. And they, of course, they liked working with MTM, Mary Tyler Moore Company. Right. So they said, well, why don't we do it like all of Mary's shows live in front of an audience, you know, with uh, three film cameras. So they switched it and they wound up doing 13 episodes and it became the Bob Crane show. Right. Unfortunately, uh, the people like Jim Burns and uh, you know, uh, I mean, Jim Brooks and Alan Burns and those kind of people who were doing Mary's show and Newhart and stuff were not involved in it, uh, this show. Uh, the writing was not great. Um, uh, the premise was, you know, it was all right. Um, and, and it aired opposite the Waltons. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. The Waltons was huge. Right. Huge show. So this is in the days, this is 1975. This is before, if, if, you're, if you have a really bad show nowadays, you can get canceled after one episode. Right. Uh, or some shows have got been canceled before they even aired. <laughs> That's right. Uh, they suddenly decide, nah, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, this is the day when, you, you know, like you had a commitment for 13 episodes to see how it was going to do. Right. And the Waltons was kicking its butt. And they actually played, NBC played all 13 episodes. They didn't cancel it after, you know, two or three episodes. They played it out. And that was the end of it. And, you know, never came back and uh, never to be rerun anywhere because, uh, you know, it just didn't have enough episodes. episodes right. to, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it was not a great show. And and that was it. That was the end. That was his second shot at starring in a TV sitcom. And uh, from then, that takes us into 1976. Uh, he's still doing um, uh, guest star, you know, roles on TV series, uh, Policewoman, and you know, things like that. But and hard he's for also him to deal uh, with. I'm sorry to interrupt, but sorry, was that hard no, no. for him to deal with? The fact that you know the show just didn't connect, and he was back to guest starring, or was he okay with that? Uh, yeah, he was very disappointed. Okay. Very disappointed. He knew uh, the Bob Crane show was not a good show. Right. He knew it. Right. Uh, he's trying to do his best. Every you know the cast, everybody on the show is doing their best, of course, and you know they're all professionals, and you do the best you can do. But he knew he knew it. It just didn't have it. So that was that was very disappointing, and especially being with the MTM uh, production company, which was you know big time, big time. 
Um, so he hit the road again, and uh, he's doing his play. And again, he's got this play down to a system where it's uh, four cast members. He's got uh, different cast members that can do it. You know, if somebody else is busy, he'll choose somebody else for the four roles. And of course, he's, he's one of the four roles. And uh, they hit the road, and uh, he's got to make money and uh, support uh, a second family at this point. He married Patty, uh, who was Clink's second secretary. Uh, there was a secretary on season one, and then beginning on season two, Patty came in and played Clink's secretary, and that's how they met. Uh, so, you know, he had to work. Um, and uh, jump ahead, then we go to 1978, and he's on the road in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, just outside of Phoenix, and doing a play for a month, and that's where he uh, was murdered. I don't know how much detail you want to go into on this, because people listening may not be aware of the situation. Um, you know, sort of the road to that murder... I mean, it revealed to at least the general public, you know, a whole other side to your dad. Yes. I don't, and again, I'm not sure what you're comfortable talking about here. Um, no, I'm totally comfortable, Ed. Go. Uh, well, okay then. So what was sort of, you know, give us a sense of the road. Like the, there was the, this other side to Bob Crane that people didn't know, basically. How much of that was sort of reflected in his private life before the murder? And what do you want to say about that situation, that whole situation with him and what he was involved in and that sort of thing? Okay. It, 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 you know, we're, we're in a very different time. I, I don't have to tell you and your listeners that. Um, uh, and I, I think the pendulum swings in societies. You know, it goes back and forth. And we're in a time now where uh, women should be noticed They and they should not be putting up with um, a lot of things that males did in the past. So that is the foundation. I understand that, and I agree with it. This was back in the, well, it started in the 60s, 60s and 70s for my dad. There were a number of things going on. He became a TV star. Uh, he met a lot of attractive women. He loved women, even though he was married twice. Uh, probably should not have been married, um, loved women. Women would come by and visit the Hogan set, not just for him, for Richard Dawson, for, you know, uh, other people on the show. Right. Um, so they got to, you know, uh, playboy playmates coming by to say, you know, uh, it was like, uh, you know, a candy store. <laughs> right. So he, he loved all of that and technology. So let's remember Polaroid cameras. I don't know how many people in your audience remember Polaroid cameras. That's shooting a, a photo. The film comes out, spits it out, instant photo of what you just took. It was, you know, mind blowing. Then from there, it goes to home videotape machines and these Items look like they were, you know, from the Kazakhstan uh, Defense Department. I mean, these reel-to-reel videotape decks were huge. The cameras were gigantic. 
uh, it was not your cell phone. It was not your little cell phone where you could do your selfie and, you know, do your video footage. This was big items and reel to reel videotape. So now everybody's scratching their head in your audience. Huh? What's this guy talking about? (laughs) So part of the attraction for my dad was technology. He loved cameras. He loved editing. He used to edit his own, uh, you know, different parts of his radio show on, on audio tape. And he found out he could edit videotape, same principle, you know, with the, the little stickum stuff that glues the two pieces of tape together, you could make your own videos. So this is a new thing. And people, men and women, love seeing themselves on camera and playing it back instantly. So you take that a step further where uh, a woman wants to show more than just a nice smile. Right. Um, and, and my dad is game because he loves women, whatever you want to do. There are no drugs involved, a la Cosby. Right. There's no mm-hmm. one's taking, you know, a drink with a, with a, uh, uh, what's it called? A roofie in it. Right. Mm-hmm. None of that. This is all, you know, and the equipment is so large. There's no hiding the equipment. I mean, it's right there. You either want to pose in front of this camera and watch it back on the monitor instantly, or you don't. And a lot of women that he met on the road, including people, women in his cast, for instance, on the play. Oh, yeah, yeah I want to see what this looks like. Well, you know, they, they're goofing around. One thing leads to another, and uh, it presents a whole new avenue of, uh, oh, let's see. I don't know what to call it. Creativity, <laughs> uh, to put it nicely. So you're talking, uh, you're talking about nudity. You're talking about sex acts. I mean, you're talking about all this stuff? Yes. Okay. Well, it starts off nudity where there may be, uh, and again, he is letting, not letting, he's, he's not coercing women. They are looking at the monitor live and going, oh, yeah, look at this, you know, and they're looking at themselves and, Maybe they unbutton their blouse for fun. They're giggling and all that. And my dad is not going to say no. He's not making them do it, but he's a guy. And he's not going to say, oh, no, uh, you better button up here. Uh, well, no, because they're, <laughs> right. it's not going anywhere. They're just going to be watching this tape together as they looked at Polaroid shots together. And I know it's it's starting to sound a little seamy and a little uh, greasy, like you want to take a shower right now. But that's what was going on in the 60s and 70s. It was also, I forgot to mention that, it's also part of the sexual revolution. Yeah. Where people slept with each other just to do it. I I, I interviewed a, a writer-director named Tom Mankiewicz, who has passed on. But he's part of the Hollywood Mankiewicz family, Joe Mankiewicz, Herman Mankiewicz. And he was telling me back when he was dating, you know, in the 60s, the swing in 60s, at the end of the evening, it would be like a, a thank you to each other for a nice date. You would hop into bed. Right. And then say, good night. Thanks. We'll see you again. And you either did or you didn't. But that's what was going on in the 60s and 70s. Um, so I have to underline this whole thing with the mood of the 
country and world at that time. Uh, there was the you know swing in London. There was the L.A. was pretty swinging place. New York, of course, you know the big cities, and um, so that's what happened. So uh, in, in today's uh, societal world that you know we're talking about, which I again I. I'm glad for women. I'm glad it swung the other way. And I'm glad, you know, there, there are limits, I think, on some things. But um, it was swinging the other way, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, where everybody just said, hey, let's go. It's a party. Right. And we'll be able to watch it back on our home Sony videotape machine now. We don't have to turn the film into the drugstore. We can look at it right now. And that was part of the uh, innocent fun that was happening right but then you obviously there was something else brewing because you know again this ended up with your father's death yes well that that uh hooks into the videotape part of it hooks in with a, a guy named john carpenter not the film director but the sony and akai uh home video salesperson that my dad met on the set of Hogan's because John Carpenter was visiting Richard Dawson who bought a Sony home video deck and camera. Uh, you know, other people, you know, Sammy Davis bought one and Tommy Smothers and, you know, people like that. You were, it started, you know, before it went mass market, it kind of started out with the uh, people in show business getting a first crack at it and that kind of thing. And that's where my dad met John Carpenter on the set of Hogan's. My dad wound up buying the video deck and the camera, uh, like we mentioned. And uh, it became a thing where Carpenter liked hanging out with the, you know, well-known people. And when my dad was on the road doing a play, uh, Carpenter would visit him in different cities, basically to go to clubs at night and party. Um, after, you know, like if my dad has a eight o'clock, uh, play, uh, and it's over at, let's say 10 o'clock, well, it's onto the clubs, you know, you, you go to the discos and whatever was going on in the sixties and seventies. And uh, Carpenter loved that. And he loved the little buzz of, you know, hanging out with Colonel Hogan and women are coming up to my dad and, you know, he loves us. So. This goes on for a number of years, and then it finally, uh, as my dad is approaching 50, which was a big deal in, you know, back in the 70s. It was still a big deal to get to 50. Um, now, you know, what would you know, would they say? 50 is the new 30 or something, something like whatever. Right. Yeah, but 50 was still a big deal. Um, so he's, you know seeing 50 down the road here and he's going to make changes. He's divorcing his uh, second wife, Patty. They, they were in the middle of a horrible divorce. They had a, a son together um, and he was going to clean up his act. So he said, and one of the things he was going to do is to get rid of the hanger on John Carpenter, again, not the film director uh, and make changes in his life. He told me Carpenter, is just becoming a pain and you know he's just a hanger on now it used to be fun now you know i'm changing and it's not fun anymore and i'm gonna make changes he told me this 
Um, and then two weeks shy of 50, my dad is murdered. Well, the Scottsdale Police Department, which uh, handled about two murders a year at that time in 1978, went for Carpenter from the word go. Carpenter had uh, means, opportunity. He was in Scottsdale at the time visiting my dad. They apparently had a big blowout one night at a club argument when there were eyewitnesses. Um, And then that night, they think around two or three o'clock in the morning, my dad was bludgeoned to death, hit twice in the head while he was sleeping. No break in. Uh, He was in an apartment, by the way, that the uh, dinner theater had an apartment for the so-called star of each production. Not a hotel, but an apartment. No break-in, no, uh, nothing was damaged, no, no fight, you know, they, they could tell. He was, my dad was in bed asleep when he was hit. And a uh, couple of things went missing based on photos and tapes of the apartment because my dad had all the equipment with him. He had Nikon cameras, he had Polaroids, he had videotape equipment. That's how he traveled. Uh, What was missing was one of the tripods that held one of the cameras and uh, a book, a little notebook of Polaroids of women that my dad had shot over the years. Those are the two items that are missing. And uh, they found electrical cord tied around my dad's neck as the kind of the the coup de gras, you know, after he was hit twice. Um, So who would think of, you know, a tripod for a camera? Who would think of electric cord from one of the videotape uh, decks or cameras? I I forget which now, Um, you know, well, John Carpenter, friendly video tape machine salesperson. Right. So they went for him for, uh, the police went to him, uh, from the day one. Unfortunately, there, there was just not enough. Uh, this is pre DNA, right. uh, testing. They went through three district attorneys in Maricopa County, uh, Phoenix. And finally on the third district attorney. Now this is, we're coming up on 16 years. The third one said, yeah, we either get him now or it's never going to happen. So the murders in 1978, the trial of John Carpenter is in 1994. So evidence has been lost. You know, again, there's now there's DNA testing in, in 94 but it's too late on some of the items. Some of the blood items, samples have dried up. They've been mishandled. They've been lost. Uh, so the prosecution did the best they could with the trial. And I was there uh, uh, one time on the stand just offering the what I told you, Ed, about you know, my dad saying he's going to make changes and right. Carpenter's a pain in the butt and, you know, I'm going to lose this guy and... Uh, move on with my life. That's really the only thing I could add. Um, and trial went on, I believe four to six weeks, uh, different people were called, you know, 
again, some of the women that they met at clubs were called the people from the dinner theater, uh, Patty, Patty, his, uh, wife of record, uh, cause there was never a divorce. Uh, she was called, I was called, you know, we all appeared on the stand. I remember my one day on the stand, I looked over at the jury who would not look at me and I was looking at each face and I thought, nah, this thing is a loser. It's a loser. Their prosecution's done the best they could with what they have, but they just didn't have enough. Didn't have enough beyond a doubt. You know, they couldn't seal it. So, uh, Carpenter was a free man. Yeah. Finally for him after 16 years of, you know, being in the news and off and on and that kind of thing. And then, uh, he wound up, uh, dying four years later anyway of a heart attack at, uh, 70. But that's, that's the long sorted story. Should, did my dad deserve this? Absolutely not. He did not hurt people. Uh, again, with the whole issue with women, it was all consensual, uh, nothing hidden, no drugs, none of that. Right. It was a bit more innocent for its day. Again, back to the, the free love in sixties and seventies were very they, different. Absolutely. They were, yep. they were, uh, so no, he didn't deserve this again. Should, should he have been married? No. Right. Uh, was was he a good father? Yeah, because he was a big kid. He was a big kid who liked to have fun, uh, but he didn't hurt people. Right. But here's know. the thing. You've got a situation where, as a son, you're mourning the fact that your father's been killed. But there's the other side where now this scandal is breaking out, whether it was justified or not, the times or not, a scandal nonetheless broke out in the aftermath of his death. Yeah. What was it like dealing with that? Because you're dealing with two very different things at the same time. Yeah, it was. Um, so you're going from sadness, and uh, you can't believe it. I mean, it, you're you know, it, it it only happens to somebody else. Yeah. You know, you see it on the news at night, and you see, you know, that was the day of, of Vietnam, and you saw families, you know, losing sons and husbands and stuff. But that happened to somebody else. Right. Never, never you. So that hit us, you know, again, small town, Connecticut family mentality. So we're ill prepared for anything like that. Uh, Basically, my mom, who was happily remarried to Chuck, my stepdad, uh, ran away from this whole thing. I mean, she we we've never my family has never talked about this. Wow. Um, So I, I. I'll put in a cheap plug for my book. I wrote, I co-wrote a book with Chris Fryer, uh, Crane, Sex Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. And I dealt with it because I, I was the person who went to Arizona to see my dad on the slab oh, at the morgue. Right. Nobody else in my family, uh, well, nobody else in my family should have. I think I was the right person to do it. It wouldn't have been my younger sister's. My mom certainly would have wouldn't have gone, and it wouldn't be up to my stepdad. He was taking care of my mom. Right. So I think it was me, and I wanted to go there, and I did, and I said my final goodbyes to my dad. You know, yeah, laying there on a on a cold slab in uh, at the morgue Jeez. in uh, Maricopa County. Um. So dealing with that complete sadness and shock. 
And then these other stories are coming out about Hogan had a second life, you know, Bob Crane's secrets. And then they're in the Inquirer and, you know, all those, the Star and all those magazines. Yeah, it's very embarrassing. I mean, I remember as a kid, because I went to public schools all the way through, no private schools in our family. And, you know, there would be kids at school who didn't like Hogan's Heroes because their parents didn't like it, you know, because they thought it was about a concentration camp and it wasn't, it was about a POW camp Uh, or uh, they didn't like his radio show or, you know, and then that kind of shaded me in a way. I I don't mean the new way of shading. I mean, it it colored me already before I even got to know this person. Right. Um, So we, we, I felt like a freak for a lot of it, you know, because uh, everybody at school, you know, their fathers and mothers were attorneys and dentists and, you know, had legitimate jobs. And uh, I think they looked at show business as kind of a circus freak uh, outfit. And uh, so I always felt embarrassed about that, even though I was proud of my dad. Um, and then later for these stories to come out, um, in magazines and, you know, Rona Barrett on TV yeah. and news reports and yeah, which very feeds into the circus belief from people. You know what I mean? It feeds it. Well, see, that's yeah. what he shows people, show biz people do. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now it's the follow-up. He's gone. He can't defend himself. He can't talk to any of these reporters. And now I, I felt like I, because the rest of my family didn't want to talk about it. So I kind of stepped into that role. Yeah, absolutely. So in the aftermath of all of this, I mean, you know, his, again, we go back to the Hogan's Heroes thing, his life, his death, unfortunately. Here we are in 2020. What is the legacy of Bob Crane then? Well, to to me, it's three three major things. I, I Hogan's Heroes is on top, certainly. Right. And again, like I said to you earlier, my dad was born to play Hogan. I I can't picture anybody else playing Hogan. Um, So you'd have to put that on top. Number two, uh, again, some people know, a lot of people don't know, would be the radio years. The years of his radio shows in Connecticut, New York uh, State, and Los Angeles. fabulous off the top of his head wildness i'd put number three uh he was pretty good drummer and you can see some of that too like he he would drummed on different variety you know back in the days of variety shows back in the 60s and 70s you know smothers brothers and leslie uggams and danny k red skelton uh he would drum on some of those shows so you can see that as well and uh, he loved jazz and, uh, I think he was a pretty good drummer. So in my mind, those would be the three, uh, major creative events of, uh, his career. Do you think that in all these years though, the time has become a healing agent, so to speak, in the sense of what kind of people have put the death and the scandal a little further away? And now the focus is more back on, even if that legacy is Hogan's Heroes, do you find that people remember him now more for Hogan's Heroes than what happened later in life? 
Yeah, maybe some of the the newer viewers of Hogan's, you know, who can still see it on MeTV and other outlets around the world. The older people may remember the murder and, you know, other sordid events of that time. But, um, uh, yeah, a lot lot of people just know him as Hogan now. And, of course, that's, I mean, it's all, everything goes away. Everything fades out. Um, It goes like... uh, well, I used to work for, and this is in the book as well, uh, I used to work for John Candy, the late, great uh, comedy actor. Right. And also did a couple of good dramatic pieces as well. Well, it's all starting to fade. I mean, John Candy has, uh, you know, died 25 years ago. And I, now it's, to me, it's boiled down to like three films for John. And this is not to take away anything from his career, but it just, it kind of, certain things just rise to the top and other things kind of sink away. And John Candy's career, to me now, people would know him from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck, and Home Alone. Right. You know, they would, a lot of people don't know that he did, you know, 45 films. Uh, So using that as the same kind of thing, and believe me, I'm not, comparing my dad's career with John Candy. But, uh, you know, most of the stuff that my dad did would sink at this point, and a few things would rise and stay floating on the surface, and that would have to be, you know, number one Hogan's. Um, So, uh, yeah, that's just what Neil Young say, time fades away. To learn more about Bob Crane, head to Amazon or wherever books are sold to get a copy of Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. In the meantime, listen to this podcast on Spotify, subscribe to it, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Yeah, we're asking a lot, but we believe in you. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.